0: Morning, Watermark. Today's scripture is coming from Acts chapter 2, verses 36 through 41. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. All right, thank you. Hey, perfect. Okay. Hey, you did a great job. You did a great job. Okay. So I was driving up to Georgia and it's story time. I was driving up to Georgia and uh, I was going under one of those signs that they write stuff on, like click it or ticket and stuff like that. Um, and it said, Amber Alert, um, Green Kia Soul. Georgia plates, and I didn't get the number. And I look to my left, and I make eye contact with a lady driving a green Kia Soul. (laughs) And we had this conversation with our eyes. And it started with me, like, going. And then she looked at me like, like, you, you don't think that's me. She's like, and I was like. Like, and I furrowed my brow, like, that was about you, wasn't it? And then she looked at me like, started waving her hands, like, no. I'm not a pedophile. Did not kidnap any children. And I followed her for a while. And the plates weren't the same. So, that has literally nothing to do with any of this. Just had to talk about the story. Anyways, um, let's pray, shall we? On that note, let's pray, let's pray. Father, thank you for everything that you were doing for us. Thank you for um, the way you're guiding us and fashioning us in your image. I pray that um, you would give us a new view from a different perspective today, uh, that we would see some things we need to see, that you would release some of our fears and allow us to live in peace Um, with each other and with you in this world that is absolutely not at peace. Let us be uh, your representatives here. When people look at us, may they see you. And let that start right now with us opening up the scriptures and hearing about Jesus. In your name. Amen. So last week, we had an ambassador of Peter from the first century. Her name was Lauren Dostal. She came. And she sort of performed... The, the, the Sermon of Peter for us. Maybe you listened on the podcast. I know most of you weren't here because it's Veterans Day and everyone's like, screw church, I'm out. Um, but for the 12 of you that were here, we experienced something amazing. And um, so she basically performed the letter, uh, the, the Sermon of Peter in Acts chapter 2, as it would have been heard in the first century um, and as it was meant to be read communally. The Bible is a communal book. Um And we covered the first part of that letter, which had to deal with um, Peter quoting the book of Job. Um, And the book of Job passage was all about the sort of this reminder that God has always been patient with them, even though they've been terrible citizens of the kingdom, uh, they've been unfaithful and greedy and deceptive, and they've been led away by power and seduced by wealth, and God was faithful anyways and restored them. And we talked about what it means to pray for the restoration of our enemies. Um, And so after the book of joel that he quotes the passage of joel there are there are um there's a, a specific passage of of psalms um from king david that he quotes as well and today we're going to look at that um possibly two of them depending on how time goes but definitely the first one um and it uh it starts off sort of before he quotes king david uh, he, he has a word to the people. Uh, Peter's Jewish. Everyone in the room is Jewish. 120 people, followers of Jesus gathered, received the spirit. The wind is blowing and crazy stuff's happening. They're speaking in tongues. And Jews from all over the world are gathering together in this one place in Jerusalem. And they all stop and they lean in to see what is happening in this bizarre space with these followers of Jesus where these, these interesting things are happening. And Peter stands up to deliver a message to them. And one of the things, things he says is this. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. Okay. So... Peter leans in, gathers the people around, and says, "Hey, why don 't we get really honest? why don't we have some truth telling here? Um, we did it again. A prophet came to us and spoke the words of God, and so we killed him. This is what we 've always done. Um, this is what all people do this is This is not just an Israelite thing, although it this is what they did every time God would send a prophet to them and say, You're worshiping idols um you are, you're, you're not being a blessing to the people around you. You're warring with them. Uh, you're not taking care of the immigrants. Um, you're importing weapons of war from Egypt. You're becoming everything that you were never supposed to be. Uh, you're performing sacrifices that mean nothing because your heart isn't really towards God. You're just doing this religion thing. And so the prophets would come and nobody likes to hear the truth. Nobody likes to be confronted. And so they would kill the prophets every single time. Sometimes the king would kill the prophets. Sometimes the people would rise up and kill the prophets. But the prophet can never be allowed to stand because the prophet is telling the truth. Um, this is not just a thing that Israel struggled with. This is what everybody struggles with. This is sort of a ubiquitous thing. There's a reason that prophets are killed. Um, there is a reason that when somebody leans in and they speak to you and they say, Hey, I, I can we talk? This thing that you're doing... He's leading you down a path to destruction, towards terrible things in your life. And it's bad. It's a, it's a really terrible choice. Usually the way we respond when the prophet speaks to us, usually the way we respond is, we'll look at all this stuff in your life. You're one to talk, right? Um, and we try to silence the prophet by pointing out flaws in the life of the prophet. And we assume if, if the flaws in the life of the person are there, then we can't trust what the person says because the words must not be true. Um, And so we're really good. We do this to everyone. Anyone who who generally tends to speak truth into our lives, um, we don't want to listen to you and we'd rather silence. We kill the prophets. When someone speaks out about corruption in a business or government, we silence them, right? That's why we even have to have like, we create these like new whistleblower laws so that if someone who whistleblows, like they can be in secret so they can keep their job and not be assassinated or whatever. Like, it's, it's because we kill our prophets, people who are telling the truth. They always end up having to run for their lives to other countries or whatever. Um, when someone unjustly is killed by law enforcement and people speak up, you did this wrong thing, instantly we start looking for, uh, yeah, uh, they p- possessed a little bit of drugs or they, they owned a firearm. And none of that may have anything to do with whether or not they were killed justly or unjustly. We try to assassinate character. We try to assassinate um, identity. We try to silence people's message. We don't want to hear the truth. We don't want to because it demands that we change something. And typically the way we decide whether or not things are working for us is whether or not um, we've lost wealth or power. And if we haven't yet, then we keep going. And the prophet speaks to us and says, all of this is going to be taken away anyways, because you're living wrong, because the path that you're on leads to destruction. And so Peter leans in and he says, we need to get really honest about what happened with Jesus. You partnered with the help of wicked men, the empire. You partnered with the people who were oppressing you to silence a man who was speaking truth to all of you, who was giving, breathing life into the lowest of the low and the poorest of the poor and gathering them together as God's people without you. And it made you feel unnecessary and you were afraid that you were losing your grip on wealth and power. And so you killed him and you partnered with the empire to do this. And they're getting very honest because we kill prophets. It's easier to kill a prophet than to deal with our sins. Always. So, after this, he moves into a quote from King David. And it says this, I saw the Lord always before me. Oh, hold on. It comes from uh, Psalm 16, 8-11, by the way. I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices and my body also, will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life, and you fill me. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Okay, so this is a quote from David David is Israel's greatest king they ever had. That's how they viewed him. Uh, he unified northern and southern kingdoms of, of Israel, brought everyone together. Um, he ruled over a peaceful time. He, he made plans to build the temple. He conquered Jerusalem and, and made it their land. So it, they, just look, they just look at him as he did the greatest things that any king has ever done for us. Um, and they loved him. Now, we can read the stories of David. We can see things that clearly were not well and not right about David. Um, David was called though, in first Samuel, he was, he was called, a, a man after God's own heart. However, David, um, he was a polygamist. He was a terrible father. He, uh, he coveted another man's wife. He coerced her and used his power to have sex with her. We call that rape. Um, he then murdered her husband and then covered it up for over a year before the prophet stepped in to speak truth to him. And for once, he didn't kill the prophet. He tore his garments and he repented and wailed over what he had done. However, David, in all of this terribleness, is still several times in Scripture, including in, in the book of Acts, it's coming up, It's called, A Man After God's Own Heart. And and the question is, is it possible to long for the heart of God and still sin so deeply for so long? The thing is, the phrase, A Man After God's Own Heart, has nothing to do with ethical performance. It has to do with desire, with or without the ability to actually follow through. Um. I think that most people want to confess their sins. I think most people um, are carrying things that they do not want to carry anymore, that they want to talk about, they want other people to know about, they want to free themselves of these things. But they know that they cannot. They know that in this world, if we speak out and and confess the things that we've done, uh, we will be put down like a prophet. Right? Like, you'll be kicked out, you will be ostracized, you will always be looked at differently. But I think most people want to get this out of their lives. And I think most people, um, given the chance, would do anything to erase the things that they've done. Most people. And I think that most people believe that the terrible things that they are doing right now, the terrible decisions that they are still making, all sort of stem back to a single decision they made at one point in their life that was like, that was like a left when it should have been a right. Like, I, I went the wrong way. And since then I've been paying for it and I've been on this path and I can't get off of it. And I think most people have the desire to be restored in God, to have that relationship, to be be felt as if you are seen as a righteous person. In other words, I think most people, this can be said about them too, no matter what they've done. I think many, many, many people desire after God's heart regardless of their ability to actually grasp it and hold it. Um, I know agnostics whom I've grown up with, agnostics and atheists who I grew up with as a ministry kid, who their kids were, they were ministry kids, their parents were in ministry, either missionaries or pastors or camp directors or theology professors. And they grew up the same as I did. And many of them are now agnostics or atheists. Um, and I talk to them about it. And we talk about our sort of our different directions of path. Uh, and I And I know that when they talk about it, They tell me I miss it. I miss God. Like they have a heart after God. It's still in there. And and they tell me they they speak about their deconstruction of their faith in like the most painful way. Like they still regret that it happened. And they talk about the faith that they had in a way that makes them smile and light up as if they're longing for something that they had lost. And I know, I know what that's like, and I know a lot of you know what that's like. I went through a time of deep agnosticism. My wife has gone through a time of deep agnosticism. And there's this sense in there that, like, God is speaking to you somehow. Like, you know there's a way to recover. You just don't know how. But you can't talk about it, right? Because nobody wants to hear your confession. Because we we live in a world that is made up of a complete lie and everyone is faking it. But if you could just confess and get it off your chest and say, here's where I went wrong. I wish I could go back. Walk with me, somebody. Then I think things could go differently because I think it could be said about you that you still have a heart after God. Even though you don't know what to do with it, that you you want it, it's in there. Um, and here's the thing. I say all this because I know there's a lot of hiddenness and pain, and a lot of doubt and agnosticism, and I, and I want you to understand that Peter understood all of this. Peter, the one who, who was following the one who taught, responding to people with swords with absolute nonviolence and love, and that Peter standing next to Jesus pulls out a sword and swings at somebody and commits violence, and Jesus rebukes him and says, "Put your sword down. This is not. This is not what we're doing." And then Peter, the same Peter, the same night, denies even knowing Jesus three times to the point where in one of the texts it says, and and when when he had denied Jesus the third time, Jesus turned and looked at him. Like they made eye contact. The third time he says, I don't know Jesus. Um, He knows what this is like. He knows what it means to absolutely fail. Um, And he knows that God has not abandoned him. In the same way, That God has not abandoned King David, despite his actions. And God has not abandoned the worst people that you can imagine right now. God has not abandoned them. That God is calling them and speaking to them and drawing them towards himself. This is what God does. And here's the thing. People think about David today. And they speak about King David in like putrid terms, which is understandable. Because of the things that he did, they were terrible. And the way that they speak about David, it's as if it's a scar on God. And it is. I mean, Jesus bears a lot of our scars. Things that we have done, the people of God have done. The ways that we have lived. The actual scarring of Jesus. And God bears a lot of scars from King David. Like we, we look at God and we, we see King David as your representative. What a mess. Or we look at all the people who have claimed to be representatives over the years and what a mess. And yes, we are scarring Jesus with the way the church strives for power and neglects the poor, doesn't fight for justice, and is exclusive. We are scarring Jesus actively. But the scars on Jesus do not change who he is. It changes how he looks. But Jesus doesn't change. And Jesus does not disassociate from you. And while he is being scarred, he's calling out, "Forgive them." They don't—they don't know what they're doing. They don't understand. And so, Peter. Speaking about this, says, David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke to, He spoke uh, of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of the Father, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and is poured out what you now see and hear. So he says, David was made a promise at the very beginning. And despite all the bad things that he did, the promise has always been that no matter what, God was going to bring salvation into the world through him, through his children. It's just a promise that he made. He obviously didn't deserve it. He didn't earn this. It was a sheer act of grace. Um, and no matter how bad, King David scarred the image of God. God was faithful and kept his promise. And this is what Peter is arguing. Even after after David was dead and gone, God didn't turn back on his decision. He followed through. And he keeps using broken and scarred people who scar himself. And he associates with them and he brings them forward and he brings them to a place of restoration. This is what God does. Um, and the whole point of this is is that he is faithful through the whole thing. Now, Peter's explaining to them that, yes, we did it again, and this prophet that came and spoke to you, you heard him speaking, you killed this prophet again, and this was the prophet that was supposed to be your king. This is what he was supposed to be. And he ends the sermon like this. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Lord, in other words, like Yahweh, God. Or if there's Gentiles listening, it means your ruler and your king. And Messiah, the the Messiah, the, the king that you have always been waiting for this whole time. This one that you killed... God raised him up and made him now your king. Now, there's things that happen when you speak this way to these ancient people because if they killed this king, kings have a lot of power and kings control militaries and kings have sovereignty. They can do whatever they want to the people under them. And they killed the king, but the king is back somehow and now they're terrified because the king is back and he and they're terrified like we killed him. What are we going to do? Right? So they respond Very emotionally to this. And the people heard this. They were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What do we do? We killed the king. What do we do? And they're terrified. Because for so long they have been the same people. And they refuse to listen to the message of God. And it's come to this. Where they even killed the presence of God. Their Messiah that they had been long waiting for. Because the Messiah told the truth. What do we do? And Peter responds and says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the, of the Holy Spirit and the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Now, if you've been here for a few weeks, uh, then you know we talked about baptism in October. Baptism in the first century was this sort of way that you would transfer um, it was for people like um, like slaves and servants in a household. Um, also, sometimes if people gave possession of children, because remember, the man of the house, the, the paterfamilia in the first century, patriarchal culture, he owned everyone. He could kill his everyone in his house or he could give them away or sell them, whatever he wanted to do. So when somebody entered into a new household in the ancient world, there was a process by which this person would enter in. That process was baptism. It wasn't just a religious thing. So let's say like, Someone was being transferred ownership of a human being to another household. They would enter into this household. They would go. They would gather around a body of water, and they would be baptized. They would be born again of water, right? And they would be given a new name, and they'd be given a new identity. Their loyalty to that old family would be cut off and gone. They would no longer look at them as as connected to them or having any kind of ownership over them. They were now a part of a new family. This was now their identity. This is who they were. This is how they saw themselves and the person that baptized them that the head of the household, they would have allegiance to this person. Okay. This is why you see Paul fighting about allegiances to based upon baptism. So some of you claim allegiance to Apollos and, 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 he says that's because that's who baptized you, but we're being baptized in the name of Christ by the body of Christ. So our, our allegiance is to Jesus. And so he says, you need to abandon everything, the whole old way, just leave it behind let's start anew. Um, How are we going to start fresh? How are we going to start new? We're going to talk about this in just a minute. But there's this this thing that happens when he says this. All of you, join us. We're we're, we're going to be a new people with a new king, a new ruler, a new way of living. And then it says, those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So first off, we can all affirm 3,000 people is... A heck of a lot of people. Um, uh, and there's a lot of discussion in, in commentaries and, and scholarship about, about 3,000. It's very specific. Like, are we rounded up? Are we rounding down? Is this symbolic? Is it, is it what? Is this literal? Is this thing, could that many people fit in the city at the time? And there's all kinds of arguments. It goes all over the place. Um, I'm going to circumvent all of that and I'm going to make a theological point to you that Luke would, would have easily been writing into this text. And it's obvious that this is what he's doing because he's already, Done this several other times. Luke is making a theological argument about who God is and what God does by saying that 3,000 people this day came to Christ. Now, I think it's entirely possible and, and likely. This was probably the most packed time of Jewish festivals in like 50 years around it because there's three festivals happening at the same time in the city of Jerusalem and people came from all over the world. So, yes. Many, many people were added to their numbers. But listen to this. Um, He's doing something theologically here. Now, the thing you can see in Acts chapter 2 is that everything Israel has lost, God is giving back to them. I want to, let's make a little list of the things that they've lost and the things that God has given back. So Israel's reversals in Acts 2, okay? It starts off with the temple. Of course, they had a temple. They still had the Jewish temple. It wasn't torn down until A.D. 70. But God was not present in that temple. We can read the prophets uh, who spoke about, um, like Ezekiel saw the presence of God lift off of the temple and float away and just gone because the people were committing idolatry. He says, I saw the temple leave. And this was right before the Babylonians came in and tore it all down and burnt it to the ground. So when they rebuilt this temple, Herod's temple, Solomon's temple, Herod, whatever, um, the presence of God, they write about it, was never there. And the people who saw the original temple when this one was completed Say, it says that they wept and mourned because God didn't come back. Nothing happens. If you were to go back to the first century when Jesus was alive and pull back the curtain and walk right into the temple, there's no one in there. There's nothing in there. All the lamps are there and the, the bread and the, the, the Ark of the Covenant, it's all there, but God's not there. He hadn't been there for 500 years. And a lot of what they were doing in the first century was trying to coax God to come back. So they're taking all the laws of Judaism and they're saying, well, here's a law we have to obey so that God will come back. So we're going to build a hedge around this law of other laws. And then we're going to build a hedge around that law of other laws, which will keep us from ever violating this law in the very middle, which is why their lives became so crazy and so detailed. And so they're doing everything they can. Um, a lot of churches still do this today. They They have like a sort of a, like a recipe for the spirit to move, right? This Chris Tomlin song. Followed by this Crowder song, and then a, top it off with Oceans. <laughs> then the guitar player is going to use an eighth note delay because that's when the spirit moves. On the eighth note delay, you guitar players know exactly what I'm talking about. You too. Listen to u two. So, um, and like and like this is how it works, and it's it's emotional, and it's like we're trying to do the right things to get God to come and show up and do His thing, and this is what they were doing back then too. But God never came back, and they didn't have a temple. But in the book of Acts chapter 2, the big argument that Luke is making and that the apostles were making is, the temple is back, but it's not a building. It's people. The temple is people. Okay? That's what it is. And Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and he says, don't you know your body is at a temple of God? Again, he's not talking about, he's not giving them an argument for why they shouldn't get tattoos. He's specifically talking to them about, about how, like, there's all these temples in your city, and when you come together, you are a temple. And so gather regularly, all the time. So there's a constant temple presence of God there. The temple is not made of stones, it's people. Human stones, as it says in Philippians, okay? Now, they received their temple back, the thing that they had lost. Second, they received their human king. There was a time when the people called out and said, we want a human king. And God's like, no, you don't, I'm your king. And they're like, yes, we do. Give us, we want to be just like everyone else. He's like, okay, but you're not going to like it. He gives them a human king. The kings fail over and over and over and over. But they they want a human king, and they don't have one at this moment. They want their Davidic king is what they want, right? But they don't have a human king. There's King Herod. He's a human, uh, but but they want a Davidic king. And Herod claimed that he had lineage all the way to David, but Herod was only half Jewish. And so it just didn't fit the bill. And plus he abused them terribly. So it wasn't a good king at all. Um, but they didn't have their king. And the argument is in Jesus you have your human king and your divine king, the God, God human and divine, your God, your King Yahweh, and your human king come together in Christ, and you have everything you've always wanted. Right here. And the third thing they're given back is their land. They believed that God would return and and they would they would have their land back and there would be no Gentiles in it. They would kick all the Romans out and have their nationalistic sort of um identity. Everyone in this land is is Jewish and No Gentiles anywhere defiling, sort of making the land impure. And when we do this, God is going to enter in, the Messiah is going to rise up, and we're going to reign. We're going to have our land back. But we we don't have it now because in the first century, the Romans were occupying it. So while they were on their land, it wasn't their land. And the message here is at the Tower of Babel, all of the world is God's footstool, all of the world is God's kingdom. There is no place where you can go and live where God is not there and not ahead of you and not preparing a path for you. God is king wherever you go. He is a universal king. And the last thing that they realized they have been given is um, their Torah, their law. They could never live up to their law. They could never be a people who could live up to it. And they could not fulfill the Torah. But on Pentecost, in the same way that Moses came down, from the mountain with the laws, the spirit comes down and puts the law on their heart. This is the thing the prophets had always said was going to happen. This, God's going to enter in a new way, gather his people in a new way, and they'll have a new law. And it's the spirit. So they've received everything. You guys, the thing I want you to understand, uh, understand about Christianity is, um, a lot of people talk about it as if it was the end. Like, it's they're, they're like cessationists. Uh, Christianity and uh, Judaism ended. Christianity began and replaced Judaism. That is not true. Um, And if you actually speak like that, you're going to offend a lot of Jewish people and probably be called a racist. This is the same language that Luther used. Um, And it didn't go well. Um, It's the kind of language that led to the Holocaust. The idea of these early Christians, they were Jewish Christians. The idea of the early Christians is that in Christ, we find the restoration of Israel everything that has been lost is being given back. Everything that we've always dreamed of and always wanted as as God's people in Christ has now been fulfilled, reinterpreted and fulfilled. That's what the early Jewish Christians were saying. They didn't see Christianity as an end of Judaism. They saw it as a restoration of it and then as Isaiah and uh, Elijah and Elisha said, that one day God would kick the doors open and let the Gentiles in, and that's us. And that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be, sa- will be saved. The emphasis is on all, as in it's a universal message. It's for everyone. This is how we should view this. And this is what is happening here. And it shocks them, okay? And Luke writes, and he says, and on this day when they heard this and they understood this, 3,000 people, came to join them. What is this? Now, um, this is the last reversal that they needed. Because the, ra- the thing that caused them to lose all of these things, their temple, their king, their land, their Torah, the thing that caused them to lose all of this was their idolatry. And the very first act of idolatry, again, it all stems back to a single moment when they made a bad decision and, and, and took a wrong turn. And from that point on, they couldn't get it back. And it centers upon the golden calf at Sinai. When when Moses is coming down the mountain with the law of God to make them his people. And the tabernacle is going to be set up in the middle of the people. And what he finds is the people have made a statue out of gold. And they have made this statue of gold. It's an ancient symbol of wealth and fertility and um, and providence. And and riches, like in power, they made this idol the center of their identity. And they thanked it for all the ways that, that, that it had set them free. And they thanked it for all the good things that had been done for them and to them. And from that point on, the temple, the tabernacle, could never be in the middle of the people. It had to be somewhere else. And Moses had to leave the people to go visit with God. Couldn't dwell in their midst. And they've always looked back at this moment as when everything went wrong. And it's not just that they committed idolatry. It's that if you keep reading the story in the book of Exodus, the priests, the Levites, they take up swords and they begin to slaughter the people. This is what Moses believed God wanted them to do. And they start slaughtering all their Jewish brothers and sisters. And 3,000 people died that day. And this is where we find the reference to what Luke is doing. The ancient audience would have read this text, and they would have seen all the references to Sinai and the law, Tower of Babel, all the stories that are in the Pentateuch. And they would have ended and centered right here with the first great sin that Israel committed that set the tone for every other sin that they would commit idolatry, not keeping their king the center. And so when they removed their king from the center of their lives, 3,000 of them lost their lives. But when the king returned as the center of their being, as the center of their identity of who they would be, 3,000 people are given back. This is theological. This is a reversal, the great reversal of the worst things that they had ever done. Because this is what God does. God is in the business of returning the things that we have lost. He's in the business of returning the things that we have lost. And God is faithful. And he's with you. No matter how many scars you've put on him, no matter how many dark times that you've been through, he's faithful. I was I was in Tennessee this week with my brother. Um, I have two brothers. One of them, Scott, lives in, in Chattanooga. He's, he's starting. He's a, he's a missionary in Indonesia, and he's now he's building currently a missionary training center for people who do tribal missions. Um, and we were hanging out one night and talking up late, and... Uh, And just kind of getting real honest about our problems with the modern church. About the failures of evangelicalism at large in these days. um, About all kinds of things. And then we started talking about our families. He's got five boys and another on the way that we're just assuming is a boy. (laughs) I've got got two boys and a girl. So he's got twice as many kids as me, right? So I guess he's winning. Who knows? Maybe I'm winning. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But we're getting really honest about, about fears, right? He, and he says, man, I'm, I'm really scared of raising these kids because all the people that we knew growing up in ministry who took terrible turns and ended up in terrible places. And he's, he's like, I'm just, I don't know what to do. They're very, very young too, all under the age of like 10. And, you know, I, I'm like, I feel that. Like, I, yeah, I can see it. And, and he's like, so what do I do? Because, you know, I, I don't know why he's asking me for advice. He's older than me. But he asked me, and I was like, you know what? I'm not worried for my children or for my friends or for my extended family. I'm not worried for them. Because I can read the text, and I can see God's faithfulness, and I can see him ahead of everyone the whole way. And all the scars that we, that we put on the body of Christ... And it doesn't change God. It doesn't change God's mind about us. It doesn't change his mind about me. And my calling is to emulate Christ, and so I will be faithful. And I expect my children will go on a journey, a spiritual journey of some kind. I literally named my third kid Pilgrim, which means a spiritual journeyer. And his middle name is Foster because of Richard Foster's book, Celebration of Discipline, because I'm hoping that on this journey he'll, he'll practice the disciplines. And it'll create some form of stability. I expect, though, that he's going to go on a journey. And I expect that one day I'll be sitting on, on my old man chair in my, with my old man's sweater. And my son's going to walk in and he's going to sit down. And he's going to tell me what he doesn't believe. Or he's going to tell me how he sees himself. Or he's going to tell me how he sees the world. And he's going to emphasize that it's not what I taught him. That it's what somebody else taught him. And that, and that I disagree with him. And I'm going to smile. And, <laughs> ah, crap. Uh, and I'm just going to tell him this is part of the journey. And I'm going to hug him. And we're going to go on this journey together. And I believe that God is with him and ahead of him and for him. And I believe God is in all of that. Because I've been there. And I can read over and over and over again of all these people that were there. And I know people who were there. And eventually they come out the other side and they're like, yeah, God was in all of that. I needed to go through that. That time of intense darkness was necessary for me to become who I am now and to make my faith my own. And whatever my kids bring me, if they ask my advice, I will lay it out for them and say, here's my honest thoughts. But what's more important than my honest thoughts is my honest love. And it's faithful to you. No matter what decision you make, no matter what path you go down, I am with you because God was with me. And this is how the path goes. The only way out is through. And this is what we are called to be. And your kids are going to put scars on you. Like, me and my brothers did everything we could to ruin my dad's ministry, like everything. My brother literally stole a van from the ministry at 11 o'clock at night and loaded up 12 skater friends in it and went to McDonald, no, Taco Bell, um, and it had just rained, and so they're doing donuts in the parking lot, which flooded the engine when they called a taxi cab and took it back home and left the church van 10 miles away with a note that says the car won't start or something like that on it. And my dad wrote his resignation and was going to work to turn it in because that's the tip of the iceberg of stuff Scott has done. <laughs> Him himself. That's just just the smallest smidge of all of it. And he said, my dad even tells us to this day, he was like, he was like I had my, re- my, my resignation in my desk the whole day, and I just didn't turn it in because I didn't, I didn't think it was over. I didn't think it was done. I didn't think Grand Theft Auto was what would end it. <laughs> and so these are the things that I've learned. These are the things that you, you catch when you're reading the scriptures. Pay no mind to the heavy-handed fundamentalist that tries to kick you out and beat you down. There is one thing that unites Christians, and it is the identity of Christ and our understanding of God. It's, it's all found in, in the ancient creed, the Nicene Creed. Creed comes for, from the word credo, which means to believe. And in 325, there's all these people running around saying all kinds of things about Jesus and about the Trinity. And they gathered everyone together. To recount the thing, this thing called apostolic succession. What did the, what did the apostles learn from Jesus and what did they teach our bishops all the way down to now? And have we changed it? And they came to a few conclusions that like, it has been shifting. And so they wanted to solidify it. And so they wrote this creed. This is the creed that's on our website. This is the thing that unites us. In this room, we have Methodists and Baptists and Calvinists and arminians and progressives and liberals and, and conservatives and fundamentalists. I, th- I think you're all here. But there's not a denomination that would ever deny the Nicene Creed. And it's very specific about what unites us. And there's all these other things that we like to fight about all these other ideas of morals and ethics and social, social ideas, and none of those are mentioned, notice. What we are told is to unite around our understanding of Christology, of who Jesus was and who God is, Trinitarian theology, and we unite on this. And this is, this is what keeps us in fellowship. And we don't separate. So, before we go to communion um i would like for us if if you'd like we used to say the creed every week i would love for you to stand and say the creed with me as we're doing this um the uh the community servers you guys can go back and gather the elements and spread around the room if you'd like and um we're going to do this this creed it's broken into four parts there's the we believe about the father the we believe about jesus the we believe about the spirit and what we believe about the church who we are and what it is that we're doing here what we're looking forward to and as always Let's be God's people. Let's mean it. Let's say it as if, even if you're struggling, you're reaching for it and trying to take hold of it, shall we? Let's do it. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father. Through him, all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he was born of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, and he suffered, died, and was buried. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Let's pray. Father, bind us together in unity. Remind us that our brothers and sisters all over the world are gathering right now in your name as your people. Let us seek unity. Um, Let us learn to walk with people through things instead of ostracizing them. Let us learn to be faithful followers of you and representations of you. And as we take communion right now, um, speak to us, encourage us, give us hope, and give us life. In your name. Amen. Take some time. Take communion uh, whenever you're ready. Thank you.